Hello listeners. This episode was recorded on the 18th of September, just before news came out about new lockdown measures. In this we'll hear Carl and Helen's thoughts, but we also want to hear a broad range of views. So if you have any, get in touch at bmj.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your regular look at the evidence around COVID-19. There's a lot of things happening in the UK and around the world at the moment. Rates are going up, testing is falling down, and I'm sure Colin Helen have some thoughts about what's going on. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Helen MacDonald. Hello, Helen. Hi, Duncan. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor for the BMJ. And as always, Carl Hennigan. Hello, Carl. Hi, Duncan. I am Carl Hennigan. I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. Welcome back to the pod. So this week, kids are back in school and people are worried about their coughs and splutters and thinking it might be COVID. Indeed, yes. As the schools have headed back here in the UK in recent days and weeks, there's been work for teachers and I think work for health professionals as well. I think uh, in primary care, phones have started to ring about the usual uptick in viral illnesses. And as you said, Duncan, the testing systems um, seem to be creaking uh, linked to the schools going back whether that's all children um, I don't know so it seems like there is renewed interest in children and Covid and that's what I wanted to talk about today specifically what are the risks of Covid-19 to children Um, because I still hear um, when I take my kids down and on the WhatsApp groups I'm part of um, concern from parents um, about their children how easy is it to spot the illness in them And how risky is it them being back at school for the rest of society? And the BMJ recently published a paper on the outcomes for children admitted either for COVID-19 illness or found to have it during a hospital admission for another reason over the peak of the pandemic. And I thought this might have some useful information, at least on how serious COVID-19 might be for children and also on some of the signs and symptoms. And the paper uses data from the ISARIC study led by Callum Temple and his team. That stands for the Infections Consortium World Health Organization Clinical Characterization <laughs> Protocol UK study. It's catchy, isn't it? It's an ongoing prospective cohort study. And if you want to hear more about its background, you can listen to one of our previous episodes. I'm sure Duncan can drop it in where do. we interviewed um, Callum about it. It was very interesting, but roughly they have about a th- Two thirds of the hospitals in England, Wales uh, and Scotland signed up and they did the study from January to July, as I say, either with people admitted for COVID or with it. Um, And there were about 650 children admitted. I'm not sure how many children there are exactly in the UK, Wales and Scotland um, or quite what two thirds of them would be. But there's about 12 million of them in England, according to the ONS data in 2019. So to me, I found that quite reassuring as a mum that there were not that many children that needed to go to hospital with this. And there were around, of the 650, 52 of the children, so around one in 10 of those who admitted, who had this this syndrome that people have become concerned about, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome related to COVID, which is a bit like Kawasaki disease. 
Um, it told us a bit about which children were admitted. So the median age of admissions was about four, about a third of them were under one, just over half of them were from white ethnic background and about 42% of them, so quite a lot, had at least mm. one comorbidity of some kind. And the comorbidities are quite interesting because it's not like one comorbidity stands out. It's not like all the children um, have underlying asthma or respiratory problems. What did the children get? What symptoms did they have? So it's worth remembering that these are children that were in hospital. So this might be a little bit different to what happens out in the community in schools. But it's the common ones and the ones that we hear about a lot. About 70% of them had a fever. About 40% of them had a cough. About a third of them had nausea or vomiting and about a third had shortness of breath. And they cluster these symptoms into packages and say there are kind of three forms that emerge, a bit like in adults. So a respiratory illness, which is a mixture of upper and lower respiratory tract symptoms together. So the cough, fever, breathlessness, but also runny nose and sucking in your chest wall when you're breathing and wheezing. The next was a cluster about this systemic mucocutaneous enteric illness, which includes myalgia, vomiting, tummy troubles, um, rashes and conjunctivitis. And finally, there's a rarer cluster around seizures and confusion. Um, and this seems to square with some of the work that's also come out of Tim Spector's group who are running this COVID symptom tra tracking app in the community because they found about half of the children didn't have one of those core symptoms. And they've really been honing in again on these GI symptoms, nausea and vomiting in children. So I felt quite reassured as a mum, but um, I wanted to talk to David Ludwig, who's one of the BMJ's research editors and also a professor of paediatrics at Harvard, to glean his thoughts on the state of COVID evidence in children and his thoughts on this paper in particular. The good news is that severe COVID-19 is much less common in children than adults. So most children are either asymptomatic or have mild illness, but they are not completely protected. You know, this is not an entirely benign condition, especially for children with underlying serious illness. COVID-19 can become a, a serious disease, sometimes requiring admission to the intensive care unit and very rarely resulting in death. So we, we can't dismiss COVID-19 as just an adult concern. And the BMJs recently published this paper from the ISARIC group looking at a large number of children who were in hospital, either because they had um, COVID-19 and that was the primary reason for them going there, or because they happened to be in hospital for another reason and tested positive um, in a lab for COVID-19. What what did you glean or understand by reading this paper? Did it help give you any new insights? Well, one condition of that's specific to childhood is called the multisystem inflammatory syndrome (MIS), and this, by definition, involves children less than age twenty one. They have to have a fever, laboratory evidence of inflammation. Uh, they have to be severely ill, requiring at least admission to the hospital. And uh, there needs to be at least two organ systems involved, the heart, kidneys, respiratory tract, gastrointestinal tract, or the skin and uh, mucocutaneous type presentations. One of the striking um, aspects of presentation in children is that less severe disease looks a lot like it does in adults. Uh, fever, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue with one notable difference. 
that uh, children seem to have more commonly involvement of the gastrointestinal tract. So uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea could be the only presentation of COVID-19 in children. And going from that severe picture back out into um, wider society where, where children are, and of course September has been back to school for many children, and we've seen reports certainly from within the UK that um, cases are starting to rise. Um, families are worried about their children. Communities are worried about children spreading um, COVID-19. Um, I wonder, can we be confident that we can identify children who are potentially symptomatic in the community because I've read pieces you know suggesting you know if it's just a snotty nose it's unlikely to be COVID but it's hard to follow where some of these claims come from and looking at the spectrum of symptoms mentioned here it seems very difficult to unpick. Some people would argue that uh, because COVID-19 in children is relatively benign compared to adults Uh, We can open the schools and um, not really be too concerned about a direct threat to the children. But I'm particularly concerned that this is a a short-sighted approach to a problem that's going to affect uh, society and then, by consequence, uh, return to affecting the children. Remember that there's a spectrum of illness from completely asymptomatic, so unrecognizable, to mild symptoms that can overlap with any other virus, you know, a, a low-grade fever, a cough. Uh, think of how many children, even in the pre-COVID-19 era, would develop uh, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea at some point during the winter. You know, that could be a routine virus, or it could be a presentation of COVID-19. Now, even if that child doesn't become severely ill, and most children with COVID won't, that child is still a threat to other children who may have pre-existing illness, and to the adults in the schools, you know, the nurse, the teacher, the custodian, who themselves may be at risk for much more severe disease, and to their family. Every parent is going to be concerned that you, you send your kid to school, and even if they don't develop symptoms, could they bring back a, an infection that's going to place at risk other people in the family? So once the virus is spreading in the community, we have to think much more broadly than whether that specific child is directly at risk due to the virus itself. And are there any ways that you would like to see the evidence from here develop on children? Do you think there are useful questions or studies that are underway that can, that can start to perhaps identify symptoms that might rule out COVID? Or do you have any thoughts on on what we should be seeing? An ongoing big um, biological mystery is why children are relatively so protected against severe illness. Um, In contrast to some other viral illnesses that tend to strike children and and older adults most severely. Uh, In this case, we don't have that U-shaped relationship. Uh, The younger you are, with the exception of very young children, infants who, who may be at increased risk. But otherwise, young children are remarkably protected and that risk increases of severe illness with every passing decade. So why is that? What about children's biology is protecting them? If we can answer that question, uh, we may 
get insights into ways to both prevent and treat the disease throughout the population. I think for me, speaking with David, the thing that I found the most challenging was trying to differentiate these symptoms of viruses in general from COVID-19, particularly if your child is just snotty, if your child's just snotty and sniffing and then they're coughing their snot, does that sort of count? If you have a child with viral induced wheeze or asthma and they're, and they're coughing, how do you kind of deal with that? And Carl, with your working out of hours, I wonder if you have any insights into that and also thoughts on, I can't get my head around whether we're saying we have good evidence that trying to differentiate these symptoms in children from other viruses is impossible in essence, or whether we need to get more evidence on how COVID presents in children to try and hone our approach in some way. So the first thing I I notice is that most of the evidence tends to be developed on hospital populations, but most of the problem is in the community. And that's what makes it difficult when I look at evidence. I just think most of this doesn't apply to what we see in primary care when we're trying to differentiate disease. I think it's really difficult in children because we have this all-encompassing term called influenza-like illness that covers a huge range of pathogens for which most of them have similar presentations in terms of the history and the symptoms and the signs. All of them more or less have a fever, most of them have a cough, you can lose your smell if you've got a blocked nose, so it's really quite similar. And I think this then comes down to actually I find it easier to differentiate other causes than I think COVID. So, for instance, a characteristic cough of croup, a tonsillitis, easy to recognise using something like the centre score. One of the problems here, though, is it depends on what we're going to do in our strategy. If we think we're going to catch everybody with COVID, then basically you have to test every child who has a fever, who's unwell. Well, the problem with that approach is it is going to be chaotic because as we've seen, just as we go back to schools in September, we've already seen a more than 50% rise in acute respiratory infections, consultations in primary care. And to be honest, they're going to go up about fourfold in a good year and about eightfold in a sort of epidemic year. So while we're looking at about 150,000 people coming forward with symptoms in the test and trace programme, Imagine what that looks like if you suddenly say eightfold increase. And that's why we're creating confusion in the system. So I think we need a more clinical pragmatic response that accepts after about five days, most children get better. So at some point, we're going to get more clinical input to the decision making processes. So, Carl, yeah, interesting that there's you, you think that clinical input uh, in there. I suppose a lot of this depends on what the kind of maybe the background transmission is and understanding really you know the levels in the population so what's going on there like do we understand what's what's going on yeah do we understand what's going on that's quite an all-encompassing question (laughs) i'm just teeing you up for like a broad answer (laughs) i'm expecting a rant so in uh, other words carl's got thoughts on transmission yeah (laughs) share them so look do we We can say that what we're doing is, through summer, we started to learn some things about the transmission of acute respiratory infections because up till now we've never tested through summer to look at what we think's happening. And if you look at the data, what it shows is the virus has been circulating at a low level. 
It's still been transmitting. It's been transmitting across all age groups, but the impact of the disease has been low. It's probably slightly higher than estimates think through the contact tracing systems, because if you look at the ONS, the Office for National Survey Infection Survey data, that suggests infections are a bit higher in the population than what we're detecting. So it's also a function of how much testing you're doing and which people come forward. As we've gone into September, we've seen a significant increase in acute respiratory pathogens. Rhinovirus is circulating, influenza is circulating, other pathogens are circulating, schools go back, bang, you see the increase in colds, the increase in coughs. And mimicking that is a seasonal effect that sees a sudden upsurge in infections with schools going back. And it's interesting, if you look at this time of year, there's normally about a two to threefold increase in emergency emissions in children, generally in under five. They drive most of the problems in hospitals from the community. And then we see a sort of little flattening off and a general increase into winter. So I think that's where we are in, 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 in the data. When I look at the data of what's happening with COVID right now, it's reassuring that it's mimicking the seasonal effect of other respiratory pathogens. But there's a tendency at the moment to panic, to keep jumping in with more and more measures. And this is the point at what point do we accept that this is an endemic circulating virus with all the other viruses. And then we work hard on mitigating the risks for those that are most vulnerable, most frail, most elderly, who are most likely to be susceptible to this infection. And you said, Carl, there's a tendency to want to jump in. And certainly within the UK, we've seen um, changes in some of the rules and this rule of six coming in. And I'm finding it quite hard to understand where where the evidence for these measures is coming from, because I don't think we have strong evidence, do we? How, how can the government best make those types of decisions? Yeah, so I think what's happened here is there's been a problem with that. The messaging continued to increase and get more confusing for the population. And when you do that, you lose the trust and people just become utterly confused and can't follow the guidance. So I think the first thing the government tried to do was simplify the messaging, Mm. accept there was a problem and simplify it. But then you're right, in doing that, they then reverted to a position where they went, well, what's the most simplest number we can think of? <laughs> Six. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting in terms of then what do you think that does? It doesn't suppress the virus because it can't have a suppression effect. All it can do is, if you think it works, is slow down the spread. What, by hours? Days? But it won't have a significant effect on what's going to happen overall. So this is the confusing message of where we sit now. We seem to have gone to thinking about cases as opposed to in early March. It was about flatten the curve, protect the NHS. Therefore, if it was me and I was thinking about restrictive measures, I'd be saving them for when we need them, when the NHS looks like it's having an impact. And do you know what happens then? People alter their behaviour anyhow if you communicate really clearly to them. That's when you have the switch off for a few weeks. You say there's an impact of the disease. And one of the key things you don't want to do is push all the cases into January, February, March when you've got the other circulating pathogens and then you could create a significant problem. 
And that's what you look to what's been happening in Sweden. Through the summer, they've had higher case numbers than many European countries. But in doing that, they've had a level of population immunity buildup, particularly in younger people who are less affected and impacted by this disease. What we're seeing now is a lots of reaction and panic as opposed to trying to think through what do we think is happening? What is the data telling us? What does it look like when we look at these issues? And I think that's what I'm finding because nobody has said, look, even within the test and trace program, within one or two areas, let's let it function and try and do it like as a, as a, a perfect test and trace system and evaluate it, what its impact is. Because a test and trace system that functions using the test appropriately with a threshold value should be able to manage this disease and ensure it doesn't get out of hand. So Carl, there you're talking about sort of general, whole country, whole area, public health things. But I remember back when this started, you, um, you were really worried about what was going on in care homes and how perhaps we should be more concerned and have greater, you know, look more about, um, about preventing spread there. Um, you know, what do you think the case is there now? So, look, it's very interesting. I looked at the German data. If you look at Germany, they've had a much le- less death rate, haven't they? They've had less of a problem, particularly in the elder. And when they look at their elderly over 75, the case fatality rate is the same as across Europe. So it's not like they're doing something different in their health system when they see people can treat them, because we know they're only in, only one effective treatment. In fact, what they've managed to do is to reduce the infection rates in the very elderly and in the care home system. That's the number one dominant issue you need to do right now. And to do that, for instance, they have a system that you have to go into quarantine for 14 days, have a negative test before you discharge back into a care home. They can do that because they've got a greater supply of hospital beds than we have. Therefore, if you want to get rid of 40% of the problem, you protect your care homes. We are now in September, and I think the government's starting to realise this. But again, what concerns me, if we start to panic, you may see this discharging from hospitals into care homes happening again. And if that happens, that is completely unacceptable. And the other thing we talked about with respect to care homes was the movement of staff, wasn't it, Carl? In in an episode really early on, and one of the things was this idea of trying to minimise movement of uh, staff going between care homes and, and other healthcare professionals coming into them. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. You hear these statements, moonshot, we're going to spend £100 billion on testing. And you think testing is not alone going to get you out of this problem. And what it showed is what she reported is just a, thinking of a simple intervention. First is to say that among staff working across different care homes compared to those working in a single home, you were three times more likely to have a COVID infection on board. So generally what that means is there should be nobody working in more than one home. So you've got to put funds in to increase the staffing level to allow for some people to be unwell So you've got an excess and they work in one single care home. And the differences are so significant that if you don't take this on board, we are going to see increasing infections because a certain person who has infection, maybe asymptomatic, will work in three or four different care homes. And by the time you've realised it, you've got outbreaks. And if that happens, that is clinically unacceptable. 
Another one to go back to, another episode to go back to would be to Paul Glasiew in the episode where we were talking about um, interventions for non-pharmacological treatments. Um, and we were talking about uh, different cleaning techniques or measures that might uh, slow down the spread of uh, disease. He might be someone interesting to talk to again and see see what else he's dug up in the intervening months and weeks. Yeah, we should do. We'll get him back on. So that will be a future. Look, episode. I think this is really important because what we're picking up is more and more evidence of this is about transmission, about slowing down the spread of the disease and understanding what facilitates it. Once you understand that tests are not going to be the solution, 100% of the solution, we're going to have to switch focus to start to understand when we need to reduce its spread, really slow it down, because it is having an impact on health services in the same way as influenza does. We may come up with something that says a couple of weeks could actually have a significant impact on a, on a number of people and particularly excess deaths through winter. So still pretty gloomy picture there and we don't feel like things have, have really changed uh, that much when it comes to Well look I think I think there are I don't think it's as gloomy as that if you look at the impact right now and through the summer the impact of covid has been very low few very few deaths we've had a change in how we count the deaths so it's more appropriate and at the moment, it is not translating into the picture in March and April. But I think we have to keep our eye on the data. I don't think this is about modelling and trying to predict what's going to happen. It's about using an evidence-based and a, a, an informative or an intelligent way of looking at the data to know when it's rising, at what point do we intervene. Great. Well, uh, if you've listened to this and you have questions, then please do let us know. You can get in touch uh, with Helen Carl via social media uh, or go to bmj.com slash podcast to find out how to drop us an email. And uh, we want to know what, you, uh, what you're worried about, uh, what, you, what you don't understand, and we will try and answer that for you. Yeah, Carl will look into it. <laughs> <laughs> He's not busy enough exactly um great well helen carl thanks very much for uh for joining us on the podcast uh, as we said we'll be back uh very soon with some more talk evidence and uh, maybe with that interview with paul glasiew so uh until next time it's goodbye from me goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care out there <laughs>